This morning at uh, CBC, we're continuing our summer series, The Tests of Faith. I'm Tim Brannigan. My wife Nancy and I are supported missionaries here at CBC. We raised our family in Africa, and I continue to travel and train people in difficult, dangerous parts of the world where there is limited access to the gospel. Many of those that I, I work with learn best when we discuss uh, stories from the Bible and through the lives of biblical characters. You know, some of life's deepest mysteries come to light through Bible stories. Stories of real people facing real challenges. Stories that we can identify with and we can learn from. This morning as we look into the scripture, let's pray and ask what lessons God has for us this day. So Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are great and awesome in all your ways. We do thank you that we have opportunity to join together, to look at your word, to learn from you. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and that we might draw closer to you through the study of God's word this day. And we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Through the centuries, many have tried to make sense out of the story that is recorded in Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. It is one of the darkest, most difficult stories that people have ever told each other. And because it's so dark and so difficult, uh, many... Um, many tend to soften the intensity of the story and the test of faith that Abraham faced. The story is just so distressing, so disturbing. As I read Genesis 22, allow yourself to walk alongside Abraham and Isaac and to feel the tension and the emotion of this test of faith. Starting in verse 1 of Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, 
Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham named, called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to, his, to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Bathsheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Such a disturbing story. What was Abraham thinking when he heard the voice of God? What, what, what did Isaac, a strong young man, probably in his 20s, experience? Did Sarah even know what was happening? The story begins with a shout. It's only one word long. A man is home with his wife, his family, and his servants. We don't know what he's doing at the moment. It's probably just an ordinary day. When suddenly the man hears a voice, a voice calls to him, Abraham! This is not just a voice. This is the voice. The voice of God. The creator of the universe. God is calling to him, to Abraham. He's not calling to Abraham for the first time. No, not at all. It's happened before. When Abraham was younger, God spoke to him and told him to leave his home which he did. God spoke to Abraham and told him to go to a strange land, which he did. Later, God spoke to Abraham and they exchanged promises. They made a covenant together. Once, God told Abraham that he had a plan to destroy the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. This time, Abraham argued with God. They went back and forth, Abraham and God. Abraham asked, can't we save those cities? or some people in those cities, or anyone in those cities. God also spoke to Abraham and told him of the coming of Isaac, the promised son. God even sent angels to tell Abraham the time of the birth. So it wasn't completely out of the ordinary when God called to Abraham. And once again, God is calling. Abraham! And Abraham said, here I am. It seems like the start of just another conversation. 
until the next words. With God's next words, this conversation changes and becomes like no other conversation in the Bible, like no other story in the Bible, like no other story. In verse 2, God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Here's the back story to what's happened. You see, when, when Abraham was a young man, God came to him and told him that if he left the city of Ur and traveled west away from his home, far from all the places he knew, that God would make him a great nation and make his name great. Abraham went. He took Sarah, his wife, Lot, his nephew, and all of his possessions. When Abraham came to the land of Canaan, the Lord appeared to him and said that this land would be given to his offspring. Well, Abraham continued to travel from Canaan to Egypt and back to Canaan again. In Canaan, Abraham waited for the birth of his first child, the, the child that would begin this great nation. Abraham waited, and he waited, and he waited. God came again as Abraham waited. He took Abraham outside his tent and said, Look to, into the heavens and number the stars. So shall your offspring be. God promised. God even made a, a, a covenant with Abraham to seal the deal. And time continued. Abraham waited. Nothing happened. His wife Sarah waited. Nothing happened. Together they waited. Still nothing happened. They even thought that they would help God out by using Hagar, Sarah's maid, Sarah's servant, to bring forth a child. It wasn't a very good idea. And nothing happened until Sarah was old, a very old woman, well past childbearing age. And that's when three angels appeared at Abraham's tent and the Lord said, about this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Well, Sarah was, was listening at the, at the tent door and said to herself, really? After I'm all worn out? She even laughed at the craziness of this idea. But a son was born. Isaac was born. Isaac, which means he laughs. But Isaac's arrival was a little bit awkward. There was already a boy in the house, Ishmael, who was Abraham's son by the servant Hagar, that offspring of a not-so-good idea. But God had his mysterious priorities. God made it plain that the future of Abraham's people, the start of this great nation, was not in Ishmael, the oldest boy, but in Isaac. So Isaac, for the purpose of nation building and the world's redemption, was Abraham's only son, the, whom, the one whom Abraham loved. So coming back to this story, in verse 2, note what God says. Take Isaac and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there 
as a burnt offering. By which God means a human sacrifice. The word here implies that it is totally consumed. So Isaac is to disappear. To be reduced to ashes. The boy who was to be everything will now be nothing. So what, what does Abraham do when he hears this command? What does he say? Well, we don't really know. There's only silence in the text. But the story continues in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. I wonder, I wonder what Abraham is, is thinking. Did, did he get up early because he is at the start of the day and he's good to go? Or maybe he got up early because he couldn't sleep. Maybe his thoughts were so overwhelming. Maybe he tossed and turned with every click of the clock. Maybe he thought, God, you can't be serious. You can't really mean it. Not Isaac. Not the one we longed for. Not the child we prayed for. The son we waited for all these years. Not Isaac. Not, not the promised one. Is this really your voice, God? We don't really know. There's so much silence in the text. But what we do know is that Abraham was an old man and a very wealthy man. He had a whole household of servants who would do whatever he wanted. Abraham could just snap his fingers, issue a command, and it would be done. So why does Abraham saddle his own donkey? His servants do that. And why would Abraham cut the wood. His servants did that work. And yet here is Abraham cutting firewood for his son's funeral pyre. Perhaps Abraham had to do, had to do something, anything, to get his mind off what he was being asked to do. Have any of us had sleepless nights tossing and turning because of troubling thoughts? Abraham probably did too. What do we do when we can't sleep? When our minds are going a mile a minute. I wonder, did Abraham tell Sarah what was going on? Did Sarah ask, why are you up so early? Where are you going? Why are you taking Isaac? You see, Abraham had to know that when Sarah hears that Isaac has been killed by her husband, if this is going to happen, if this is really going to happen, Abraham has to know that this will probably be the single most terrible experience in her life. The writer of Hebrews comments that Abraham considered that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead, that God could. Not necessarily that God would. And to be honest, Abraham doesn't really know. 
And at this point, we don't really know. All we know is that Abraham leaves early in the morning, walking side by side with his son Isaac, with the donkey and with the servants, heading to the place that God has chosen for him to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. I wonder if there's any communication happening between Abraham and Isaac. We don't really know. There's just so much silence in the text. The silence is deafening. They walk for one day, for two days, for three days. They walk for about 45 miles. And then, as recorded in verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they, both, so they went, both of them, together. Now some say, well, see, Abraham had such faith that he knew the son would come back. Oh, really? What did you expect him to say? Hey, you guys stay here. The boy and I will go, and then I'll be coming back. No, he wouldn't say that. There's so much tension going on here. What's happening? What's happening? The two of them, father and son, walk on alone. And that's when Isaac stops and he asks a question, a heart-rending question. Father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. There's a comma there. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both of them went together. And Isaac doesn't say anything. At least there's no response in the story. In the text, there's just silence. And the two of them keep walking, walking to Isaac's death. It seems... As if God is saying, Abraham, that, that son, the one I promised you would be a great nation that would grow and multiply, that, that son that you and your wife waited for all your lives that were so improbable, that son when angel said, a boy is on the way, that Sarah laughed, that son, the one you nurtured, the one who would be your future. Well, in spite of all the things I told you, all the things I promised, all the things you counted on, all the things we agreed upon, I want you to kill that son. What would you do? What would you do? Well, in verse 9 it says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took a knife to slaughter his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Friends, what are we supposed to think of this story? What kind of God would put a faithful person like this to the test? And what kind of person would pass this test? It's interesting to see what happens to Abraham after he does what he is commanded, after God provides the ram and uh, saves the life of, of, of Isaac. The text says in verse 19, Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. You see, Abraham comes down from Moriah. He returns to his servants. He heads home, but without Isaac. Isaac's somewhere else. He's not with his father. Abraham returns to Beersheba. No doubt Sarah heard about what happened or what nearly happened. And interestingly, Chapter 23 begins with the death of Sarah, who is living in Hebron, not with Abraham in Beersheba. An amazingly disturbing story. A story in which a remarkable man put his faith in God over his deepest instincts, and he was rewarded. But at what price? At what price? When God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, God said, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Other translations said, I am your shield. I am your great reward. When all is said and done, in the confusion of life, is our relationship with God enough? In this story, in the, in the silence, don't you just sense Abraham's blazing heart filled with concern and confusion and contradiction? Why my son? Why is this necessary? I need a reason. I need to know. Abraham surely had those feelings. He surely had those questions. And I'm sure that he had more than just a few doubts. But he had something else too. Abraham had hope. A deep hope that beyond reason, beyond understanding, beyond explanation, that somehow there was a purpose in this awful deed. A hope that God is merciful in ways he did not understand. 
perhaps in ways he was not meant to understand, in ways he was not meant to know, or built to know. And his hope, perhaps, just barely covered his doubt. Which brings us to the last player in this story, Abraham's son Isaac, who was bound, put on the wood, and watched as his father stood above him with a dagger in his hand. Abraham was ready to use that dagger as he lifted it up over Isaac's heart. Isaac looked into the eyes of his father. He saw his father's resolve, and then he survived. What was Isaac thinking when he went down the mountain of Moriah alone? Had Isaac heard the voice of God? Isaac must have asked himself, why was I tested? Why was I spared? What's the point? Am I alive because my father passed a test? Would I be dead if he didn't pass the test? Do I matter? What do I do? Well, perhaps he said, well, I guess I just get up. I grow older. I marry Rebecca. I have children of my own. I make mistakes. I laugh. I love my kids, Jacob and Esau. And I go on. And I hope. I hope in a God who acts in my behalf even when it is beyond reason, beyond understanding, and beyond explanation. Friends, as people, we have a passion for answers. We want to know the reason why. But we don't always get to know the reason why. We don't always get the answers to the questions we have. We don't always get the answer to the prayers that we ask for. All of us, not just Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, live with a paradox or contradiction of sorts. We see things, we experience things that seem wrong. They are wrong. That are cruel. And we wonder, is there a logic or a higher purpose to explain what I see? And if I can't know that logic, can I just hope for it? Hope that there will be an explanation? Hope that that's enough? Friends, can we, can we live with the fact that we may never know that all we have is hope? Can we face this reality of life with just hope? In God? Is our trust in God more than our doubts as we see the world around us? If love and mercy are good things, then why are they missing so much of the time? Abraham can ask, why would you command me to murder my son? We can ask, why would you allow my child to die? Why would you allow my wife to get cancer? Why would you allow my house to burn down? 
Why would you allow my crops to fail? We can ask, if you're a good God, how could you allow fill in the blank? We hope there's a reason. Most of us know enough about life to know that God doesn't always send angels to stop bad things from happening. Sometimes the killer kills. Often, too often, the killer does kill. And yet in this paradox, in the tension in which we live, we have hope. Friends, our faith has consequences. And not all of them seem so good. I grew up in California. I was going to be a research scientist. My, I was all set to go to grad school. My parents were thrilled. And then something else happened. I came to faith. And I met and married Nancy. Nancy thought that she was marrying a research scientist. Our parents were thrilled. And then something else happened. God led us as missionaries overseas with our kids. It hurt my parents' heart as we moved to Africa. They couldn't come to the airport to see us off. They couldn't get close to my kids because it hurt too much. So they focused their attention on their other grandchildren. My kids never really got to know their grandparents. Can you sense the emotion? The emotions of my parents? Never being able and never really wanting to get close to my kids? Can you sense the emotion in our hearts or the hearts of our kids? The blessings of drawing closer to God's family as, a fa as drawing closer to God as a family in Africa mixed with the challenges of being separated from our extended family in America. One of the reasons Nancy and I moved to Hillsdale is because my daughter made the comment, I would like to have my kids get to know their grandparents more than I got, more than I got to know mine. Our faith was also te tested when we were on the mission field. In the midst of a civil war in Liberia, I was asked to es escort, escort three important people to the airport to catch the last flight out of the country back to America, and I would remain. I'd get them to the airport in the, in the late afternoon, but I would have to stay because of the troubles that happened at night. I was told, this is the last flight. The airport's about to be destroyed. You'll probably get them there, but you'll probably not return. I sense the Lord say, I laid down my life for you. Are you willing to lay down your life for people you hardly know? <laughs> the blessing of the presence and the intimacy with God during that time, mixed with the challenge of perhaps never seeing my wife, my children, or my family again. Can you sense the emotion? 
My faith was being tested. Well, I did get out of that situation and some other very troubling situations and I was able to make it home, probably lost about 60 pounds. Now, I was speaking in a church and one of the elders came up to me and said, you know, Tim, there's a fine line between faith and foolishness and I think you're on the wrong side. How do you deal with that? Like Abraham, like Isaac, we hope. We hope that one day it will make sense. We've seen kindness. We've seen cruelty. But one more thing we have seen. Centuries later, God made known this mystery. Christ Jesus, the hope of glory, who suffered and died to become our hope. In verse 14 of our story, we read, So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Abraham called the name of the place Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. Well, where is Mount Moriah? It's still around, but the name has been changed to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem. 2,000 years later, on this same mountain, God took his son, his only son, the son that he loved, Jesus, and fastened him to a vertical altar of sacrifice. But this time no one shouted, Stop! And Jesus died. God provided the lamb as the offering. The promise that is seen in the test of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac has been fulfilled. God said, Abraham, I will provide a sacrifice. I will provide the lamb. And he did. Not just with a ram caught in the bushes, but through his son. His only son. The son that he loves. The son who is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is our hope. In a world of confusion, Jesus is our hope. In a world of contradiction, Jesus is our hope. Our only hope. Our reason to live. Our reason to press on. When the world is so silent and we don't know what to do. And it sounds so confusing. And it doesn't make sense. We hold on to Jesus. Because He is the hope of glory. Two weeks ago during Hillsdale College graduation, I had a conversation with a friend. And he said, Tim, you do know that putting yourself in harm's way in some of the places that you go may lead to your kidnapping, imprisonment, and death. So, so why do you go? And tears started to well up. And I said, because he's worth it. And because he's hope. And the world needs to know the hope of Jesus Christ. Whatever the cost it is to me. My friends. Jesus is worth it. We have hope even in the silence. Because of him. So we learn from Abraham. Who against everything in his mind. Continued to trust 
in the God of hope. That he knew what he was doing. And he is a good God. And he looks out for his people even when it doesn't make sense. We have hope even in the silence because of him. Our Father, we do thank you that you are the God of hope. We do thank you that you've revealed, you have revealed yourself in your word and through your spirit and through the encouragement of others. May we walk with you this day, this week, this year, and throughout our future in the hope that only Christ offers. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.